0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office.
1: Got Greg and Doug Stokes here with Lanyap Podcast, and it's 4th of July here. I'm in North Carolina, Greg's in Montana. We're both traveling with our respective families and wanted to record today. It's a special day here in America and wanted to record specifically to talk about the uniqueness of the American idea and the American experiment and how lucky we are to be Americans, but also just give a general update on what's going on in financial markets and in the economy. But before we get into what we do on a day-to-day basis, maybe we'll just take a step back and share comments on what the American experiment in America itself means to you. And I'll share my thoughts, but I'm just curious, when you think about yourself as an American, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
2: I think back from our, from the history of our country at its inception and the bravery that the original founders had when they declared independence from Britain and then the selflessness of our original leaders like George Washington leaving power after two terms and the compromises that took place historically in terms of the drafting of our constitution, everything that was done originally by our founders really set us up for success. And we certainly have our problems today from a divisiveness standpoint, but I really do still think that America represents the best version of what a country could be. What do you think about what does America mean to you, Doug? I think I echo a lot of the same sentiment that that you expressed. I think it was
1: just at the time such a unique idea and it probably still is unique just because the natural inclination for humans is to acquire power for those close to you and your family in a competitive set compared to other people and maybe oppress other people for your potential gain. And it's so against human nature to give up power for those that are currently sitting in power. And I think that's the most unique aspect of our founding fathers is that they understood the danger of acquiring power through force and through government and decided to set up a government by the people for the people with the idea that there's restrictions on power of government and that the power of government should be closest to the constituents, meaning that the federal government should have the least amount of power, followed by the state government, followed by the local government, because the local government, of course, is accountable to All the people in its local area. So if you're screwing up as a local politician or local leader, you're looking at the people in the faces that are voting you in and out of office each term. And so the idea that number one, to give up power when you acquire it, and number two, to make sure that power is localized is a pretty powerful idea, one that stood the test of time and is under attack constantly just by. The nature of growth of this country there's 300 or 400 million people here now and people coming from all different walks of life but the fact that america has withstood that sort of test and will continue to is just a testament to how great the people that set this country up another thing i think about is that the founding fathers were not perfect people and i think that's one thing that we witnessed in the last couple of years with a lot of what was going on post summer of 2020 with George Floyd and discoveries about the people that set up this country were not maybe not the best people in the world, but the American idea is also always in pursuit of that. What the declaration of independence was all about, which is all men were created equal. All men and women are endowed with unalienable rights, uh, you know, life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. And I think that you're never perfect, but so long as you're always in pursuit of that sort of ideal, then you're always in pursuit of liberty. And I think that's what the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were all about, just setting us on the path
2: to liberty, but obviously not set up by people that were perfect. Absolutely. I also think our finance system is the best in the world. I think that's inarguable. And with what's happened lately, we're recording this on July 4th. So we're still in a bear market right now. Rates are high. Inflation is way through the roof, et cetera. But the interesting thing is the dollar relative to the other currencies in the world has really held up tremendously which you wouldn't think if with all this strife that's going on like for example the year it's a 1.04 euros to the dollar right now so anyway it's impressive and amazing to me the way that we have our finance system set up we're basically the world's reserve currency and that was part of the ingenuity we had like these smart people like alexander hamilton that set up the first central bank of the United States. And we've really become a powerhouse in that regards. And I think that's even through this latest period has really been highlighted that we're the reserve currency of the world and we have the best finance system. When you look at the legal system that we have here, the federal system is set up so that the power was originally left to the states, but the federal government exists to provide the check on that power which is really fantastic. And basically the way that I look at the United States is we're a leader in all different facets, finance, law, the checks and balances that exist, the military. We have the best military in the world. We're very fortunate to be citizens of this country. Yeah. I
1: also think about there's the American exceptionalism component. When I think other countries view America as arrogant or at least Americans as thinking that Americans are better than everyone else. But I also think that it's just the system itself, that Americans are no better than anybody else all over the world. There's people that want to come to America and become Americans because of the American system, not because of anything unique about America itself or the land here or the people here. No, it's the system that was set up, what, 250 years ago that holds to this day that is the beacon of liberty in the world. People want to be here. People are envious of the system. Governments that have power all over the world cannot change that power because they're giving up power in order to to change to this American system. And I think that's an impossible task, one that is pretty u- unique to what America has done in 1776 and beyond. I was actually reading the Declaration of Independence earlier today, and, and it just lists the... Levels of oppression that the British government had on the American people and how the American people really had no rights. One of those was trial by jury or taxes or conscription into the British army for wars that they were not a part of. But it's all this whole idea just comes back to the fact that you had people that fought for independence, acquired independence, and then gave up that power, even though they're the ones that they basically had the opportunity to repeat the British model if they wanted. After they gained independence and they didn't. And I think that's a pretty amazing task for those people. I can't believe you sent me something earlier today that, you know, these people were what James Madison. Yeah, they're 18 years, 18, 19,
2: 20 years old when they wrote this. Yeah. Hamilton was 21. Aaron Burr was 20. Thomas Jefferson was 33. James Madison was 25. And James Monroe was 18. In 1776, it's
1: unbelievable. And I'm thinking of myself at 18 years old and I <laughs> had an idea of Liberty, but it was Liberty of getting out of the house and going to college and doing it, whatever I wanted at college, it had nothing to do with uh, right, any exactly.
2: moral backbone whatsoever. It's a uh, pretty amazing. And I really do think that Washington giving up power, he could have become the King of America, but him stepping down after two terms, that tradition was broken by Roosevelt, but eventually that was codified as amendment that you couldn't go for longer than two terms. But I think that Washington's selflessness really was, uh, there was just this sort of perfect storm of the right people, the right place, the right time. And it's amazing to me that it's held up over the course of 250 years or whatever, through the expansion of the country, through wars, the civil war, et cetera, here we are. And I don't know if this is something that's recent or if it's recency bias, but it seems like things have gotten very divisive now, but I want to imagine that Things were pretty divisive back then when they were yeah. drafting the constitution.
1: I think it's cyclical. It's the pendulum swinging, right? You had major patriotism and country coming together as one in the 1940s and fifties, uh, and then swinging far to divisiveness in the sixties and seventies. And coming back around don't th- see this system as one that is able to be broken. So long as you have the right checks and balances, which. The original setup of the constitution was in that regard that obviously there's been a lot more power that's been granted to the executive branch mm-hmm. since the 1770s but we're at a point now where there's major division in the country a lot of that can be solved by good leadership but i don't think the american
2: system is broken by any means i don't think so either we we're talking about with the fact that through all this bear market activity the currency has really held up tremendously and that's just emblematic i think of the America even Though it has its problems, it's the best place in the world still. It's certainly the best place from a finance system and then also from every other issue that exists.
1: Yeah, I also think that's relativism because if you look at the rest of the world and the world's currencies, what would you rather hold? And obviously, euro, yen, pound, or US dollar, I don't think there's much of an argument there. And like you said, 60% of transactions that occur globally are in US dollars. And the next best one is what, like 12 or 13%. But we were talking... A year or two ago, and financial media was talking a year or two ago about the global reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar and how potentially Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency, or maybe the Chinese Yuan or Remnibi would overcome the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. And that's just a complete farce. And there's no, absolutely no chance that either one of those, at least any time in the near future, unless we do something to screw up our system, overcomes that, which it makes it a, a great advantage of America against the rest of the world to be able to really control economic warfare, really control global Mm -hmm. trade, control access to banking systems that occur globally. Huge advantage that America has versus the rest of the world just by virtue of having the reserve currency. Let's uh, shift gears for a second and We can talk about America all day, but maybe let's just talk about maybe the American economy and state of affairs. Specifically, uh, I think it's interesting, maybe just a recap on what's happened between January 1st and today related to mortgage rates. So at the beginning of the year, mortgage rates were under 3% or right around 3% for a 30-year fixed conventional loan. Now they're around 6% for the same exact loan. So mortgage rates have doubled in six months. And obviously in terms of the amount of money you have to outlay each month to cover a mortgage payment. There's a substantial increase of cost of debt on, it, on that may be of the same value. So what's going on in the housing market with the
2: rates increasing between three and 6% of the first six months of the year? Well, as you would imagine, significantly less people are refinancing their mortgages and also mortgage originations are way down. They're down about 20 to 30% respectively. So. What you're seeing is people, and that's also, and I, I'm sure people are saying this in their day-to-day lives, but inventories are also up and Bill McBride, who's an economist that focuses on high-frequency indicators in the economy and the housing market, said that inventories should be back to their pre-COVID levels in the near term, but basically what you're saying is a slowdown in originations. People are starting to sell their, list their houses, and we're also starting to see the prices of some housing-related Commodities go down like lumber just because it's getting to be more expensive to service the debt associated with building a home and owning a home, et cetera. So I think it's fascinating. The idea of what's going on is we're in the midst of a bear market. Obviously bear markets usually last about six months. We're at about month six or seven of this bear market. It's not been fun since the market peaked on January 3rd and the fed is trying to rein in inflation by raising rates. The mortgage market is feeling that. And the housing market is feeling that what I find is interesting is, you know, we're both in different locations right now. I'm in Montana, you're in North Carolina. The flights have been absolutely packed. You drove up to North Carolina, but I'm seeing the restaurants, at least here are all full. I'm not really seeing any manifestation. Presently there were in a recession or close to a recession. Well, how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I think the housing component is unique. I think there's a recency bias component here too, that. The last major recession was a housing-led recession and a housing crisis, uh, which led to a global financial crisis. And I think people are looking for the same signs of cracks in the system in housing. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that this is probably a manufactured slowdown in housing. But what happened is you had a huge run-up in the price of homes in 2020 and 2021. There was the expansion of the money supply plus a complete reduction in rates. And I see this as a federal reserve induced slowdown in housing by increasing at least a derivative of what they've done has been an increase in the cost of debt. Inventory levels are trending up. Yes. But who is selling a house that maybe they have a 3% note on to buy a new house at a 6% note? The sellers have to be people that have adjustable rate mortgages that don't really have a choice. Um, but I can't see anybody listing their house and giving up a note that they may have refied a year or two ago for two or 3% to enter into a new contract at a 6% rate, unless it's forced. I can see the price of homes coming down simply because they ran up so much for the last two years, but I don't see this as a a 2008, 2009 situation simply because number one, the consumer is in much better shape. I looked at the average, uh, lending characteristics of borrowers. These are prime borrowers that are you know, mid 700s credit rating. They're putting an average of $75,000 down on homes. This isn't like the, the exotic dancer that has five different homes that you saw in the big short movie or read in the book. These are just people that are flush with cash because of either a growth in their asset level for the last couple of years because of financial markets or whether it was stimulus money or expansion of the money supply, just a higher net worth and housing has run up as a result of that. One concern I would have as it relates to just general inflation is because renting is now the only real alternative that you have if you don't have the down payment to make a 75 or 100,000 down payment on a home, then you're going to rent. Cost of rent is just starting to catch up with the increase in housing, and so as a component of inflation, that's really the one thing that worries me. What can the Federal Reserve do? to really stamp out rising rents because
2: those have to follow rising home prices. Yeah, they can obviously raise rates and slow down the economy and make it more expensive to borrow money, for example. But in terms of like oil and petroleum derivatives, they'd have less control over that as well too. And the price of oil is pretty close to multi-year highs right now, like $108 or $109 a barrel. And I don't know what's going to happen as it relates to that piece of the equation from an inflation standpoint. If you had to look in your crystal ball, Doug, what do you think inflation looks like the next 12, 24 months?
1: I think it could go one of two ways. And I think there's equal probability of each. I think you have a slowdown, a disinflationary environment. So if you look at the cost of lumber, the cost of concrete, freight costs, shipping costs from China or Europe to the U S there's been a major topping effect in uh, the cost of some of these inputs which should lead to disinflationary forces a lot of those were supply chain driven so if you know all the narratives around supply chain disruption from COVID, and that's going to take time to work out it seems like that is working itself out so it could go of one of two ways one way it could go is that there's a disinflationary period where we get down to a target inflation number of two to three percent that the federal reserve may have if you actually look at inflation expectations, five-year inflation expectations, right now, they're the lowest they've been in months. They're like 2.38% or 2.39% for inflation expectations in five years. And so if that's the case, then you have this trend down towards more stable inflation, which would be that Goldilocks scenario. Um, I'm not really putting all my eggs in that basket. I really don't see high inflation for a long period of times. I'm not considering that as a high probability outcome, although it could be the case. I think the more scary situation is that the Federal Reserve overshoots its raising rates uh, to the point where uh, it pushes the economy into recession. You have commodity bust uh, where oil goes from $120 a barrel to 40 or 50 like it did in 2009 or in 2014, 2015. You could have other commodities completely blow up, and that would just mean a total slowdown in economic growth across the globe. I prefer option one than option two, but I think that there's likely probabilities of both occurring one way or the
2: other. Right. Because the concern is that the fed is raising rates right now into a disciplinary environment that's occurring on a natural basis. So if indeed they continue down this path of raising rates and they slow down, then they could push us into a recession. I do think that the market at least is pricing the possibility of that in. It could also be the other way as well too. So right now, today's July 4th and the market peaked on January 3rd, so a little bit more than six months into a spare market period, about 24% from, from the peak as it stands right now. I saw an interesting chart and the question that I get from people that I think about all the time is when is this going to end? So the comforting thing that to me is that it will eventually end. This market will eventually turn into a bull market. And I think that uh, there's some psychological aspects to it as well, too, that I think are are promising. Uh, but also from just a historical timing standpoint, like I said, the average bear market lasts about six months or around that point in I'm uh, already. So eventually things are going to turn around. And from a psychological standpoint, just if you look at the overall sentiment in the market, things seem very pessimistic right now. I, I like to refer back to a famous quote from Sir John Templeton that, Bull markets are born on pessimism, mature on skepticism, uh, grow on optimism and uh, die on euphoria. And so I think that just from a, an empirical standpoint, historically, we're kind of at a, you know, the, the sort of around the time that to, you would expect things to start to, to moderate and also what psychological and my, my observation in the market, from the marketplace in, in terms of talking with people, et cetera, is they, things seem very pessimistic, which usually is a positive indicator from a return standpoint. How do
1: you feel about that, Doug? We've been talking internally about this, but we've been focusing a lot on on credit spreads and the difference between junk bonds and treasury bonds. And typically the spread between a junk bond, your yield that you receive on a junk bond is about 3 to 4% higher than the yield you would receive on a treasury. And that markets generally are in crisis or you know in a major downturn, major bear market. When that yield goes up to 6.5% or higher, I just looked yesterday, it's at 5.87%. And the reason I say that is because if you also look at these prior events where the yields have gone 6.5% or higher above treasuries for junk bonds, uh, the forward returns for the markets, whether you know, pick an index, are, are quite attractive over one, two, and three years. And so we if we want to use your Templeton quote as a you know, when are bull market's born or use a Just a quantitative approach to say okay when when should i be start to become optimistic about the future just based on data we're nearly there based on sentiment we're nearly there we're having conversations with people all the time yeah so i'm always curious about this just your general thoughts on what is actually priced into the market what does the market believe will happen and what do you expect better or worse coming out of this short period
2: of time going forward so so I, i think it's an interesting dichotomy between the plane that I took up here was full. Bill McBride also posted data as it relates to the percentage of flights relative to the same period in 2019. We're basically at the same levels as we were in 2019. People are flying a lot. It's interesting about that, that business travel hasn't even come anywhere near
1: back to where it was in 2019. It's 30% below where it was in 2019. And we're still traveling at the same amount as we were back then, meaning Personal travel has got to be up 30% from where it was in 2019, just to offset.
2: Exactly. And so the American consumer is like 70% the GDP of the country. So people are traveling for personal reasons, tourism related, not for business related, and they're spending a lot of money while they're doing that. The Jets ETF, so the representation of what the market sees the airline industry is worth is off 35% from its highs, even though... People are traveling more now than they have at any point in time relative to 2019. I think another good example of that is if you look at the home builder
1: index, home builders, KB Homes, Lennar Corporation, et cetera, are printing more cash than they ever have because obviously the housing market has been hot and they're off 35% from their highs. So anyway, that's the same sort of analogy related to the JETS ETF, the travel ETF, but even home builders are better crazy cash flow positive and growing more than they ever have their stocks are getting
2: destroyed market doesn't believe the growth so what i interpret the market's saying is that there's a high probability of a recession a slowdown and that's why the prices of these things has gone down dramatically but the question is how much of that is already priced in and in circumstance that you mentioned before that inflation moderates and the economy don't get a recession a lot of these things could be Oversold, basically. I think it's all a really interesting dynamic that exists, and like we talked about, when are we going to bottom? I don't know when it's going to happen. We're six months into this thing, but it's going to happen sooner or later.
1: Yeah, I think optimism always wins in these sorts of situations, and and if you just look at prior events of bear markets and look at the data on a go-forward basis, you get comforted related to market performance. I think this goes back to just the general thoughts on America and the Fourth of July. That if you believe the American engine. Will continue to hum in the future in the american economic engine specifically then you feel good about these periods as an investor that either there's going to be a bounce back or if you're sitting on cash that you may not get the bottom exactly but you're buying really great companies you're buying corporate america for a pretty cheap multiple on a and maybe cash right. flow slow down because of a recession But uh, two or three years out, those cash flows will return and you're getting great companies at a decent valuation.
2: I think it's fascinating that the S&P 500 after entering a bear market, and this is what we talked about in terms of it's basically darkest before the dawn, essentially in, in life in the markets. But if you look at history, one year out, this is from the wall street journal, the median return, there's periods where a year from now, it could very well be negative and there's been historical examples of that. But on a median basis, one year out from when the market entered a bear market with markets were up 23.9% 12 months out. So I think that's the higher probability type of event. That's been my personal feeling, although nobody knows what's going to happen as well too. But just like there's a lot of things that happened post-COVID that became a part of our life, there's going to be certainly things that came out of this sort of period of time that, that we look back at in terms of this most recent bear market and the bull market that preceded it that were, are going to be interesting from a historical context like the i think the GameStop fiasco and all of those other stocks that's going to probably be in history books a lot of these cryptocurrencies washing out is going to be another interesting thing that came out of it but i think and this is a general theme and that i'm going to echo that America typically prevails and i'm going to take that optimistic bet as well too and that's what the data indicates
1: Well, we hope everyone had a wonderful 4th of July with your families, and we thank you for listening, and hopefully you enjoy the podcast. And if you do, please share with friends.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.